Welcome to episode number 24 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, we hear from a Norwegian pilot who recently ditched his glider in a lake. He walks us through the decision-making process and how training made all the difference. On Gliding Club Confidential, we go to Australia and the Balaclava Gliding Club. It's home base for Bernard Ecke, gliding guru and author. And finally, gliding and COVID brain. We've all been affected by COVID-19, but what does it mean for us when we get into the cockpit? We hear from the Surin Association of Canada's National Safety Officer. That's all on episode number 24 of The Thermal. Norwegian pilot Oysten Borkland doesn't get rattled easily. On May 1st of this year, Oysten showed up at the Sandfjord Gliding Club to fly his discus. The club is located on Lake Heddles, which is about 100 kilometers west of Oslo. The weather was good and he was hoping to fly a 350-kilometer task, but things didn't work out that day. Seconds after takeoff, the tow plane ran into problems and Oysten successfully ditched his glider in the lake, which happened to be at the end of the runway. I've reached Oysten at his home in Oslo. Hello, Oysten. Uh, thanks for coming on to the podcast to, to, to tell us your story. Oh, hello. Um, thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate you coming on and, and telling us. So let, let's go back to the day of the incident. Describe the conditions and the runway that was in use and what was going on. Well, uh, the conditions were um, uh, actually quite great. It was uh, almost no wind. And um, the runway is uh, about 1.8 kilometers uh, long and 40 meters wide. And, um, yeah, it was a beautiful day, um, uh, ready for soaring, actually. It was good, the soaring conditions. I was, um, I was planning about a, a 350 uh, kilometer task and, um, everything was actually, uh, well, it was, looked, looked like it was going to be a, a beautiful day. Um, so it was and, uh, early in the season, you haven't done much flying yet. I imagine you still have a bit of, uh, you know, trying to get back into the saddle, so to speak, right? Yeah, that's right. I, we started up uh, um, two weeks before, and mm-hmm. um, it was just my second flight for the season. So uh, so I guess I was a bit uh, concentrated and um, uh, quite thorough with my uh, my checklists. Mm-hmm. Anything. So the... Kind of put us in the cockpit here. The the all out has been given. You know, you're you're comfortable. You're strapped in. You're on your way down the runway. At at what point did you realize that things weren't going in the right direction? Well, we um, uh, we have um, a taxiway about uh, two thirds down the runway, um, and uh, when we were getting close to that, I uh, I realized we weren't climbing as much as we usually do when we get to that point, and. Mm-hmm. Um, a taxiway is always the last uh, decision point. So <laughs> if we pass that, it's uh, starting to get a bit late to uh, to change your mind. So, um, but um, yeah, we weren't climbing as much as we uh, we usually do. So uh, I didn't think much of it that uh, for a couple of seconds there because um, sometimes the tug pilots, uh, you know, they they stay low for a little while to build up some speed before they start climbing uh, properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought maybe that was uh, what was going on. And, um, but um, when we passed the taxiway, I think we may have uh, um, about 30 meters uh, of uh, height. Um, that will be uh, 90 feet or something. Yeah, that's about right, yeah. 
Yeah. So uh, I saw this black puff of uh, smoke coming out of the tug plane, and uh, that's when I realized uh, something uh, was a bit amiss. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, and uh, the tug pilot uh, came on the radio uh, just after that and said that he had uh, engine trouble. So that's when I realized we were we were uh, uh, in a bit of an uh, abnormal situation. Now the the tow pilot didn't release you at that point. Uh, no, he didn't. Um, he didn't wave me off, uh, and he uh, has a guillotine in his cockpit as well, so uh, he can he can release me if uh, there's an uh, emergency. But he didn't do that, so um, I uh, I wasn't quite sure what to do at the moment. But I um, I reached down for the release handles to be ready if mm -hmm. I release. So. Uh, um, yeah, I think it was a couple of more seconds, or just maybe a second more. Uh, then it, it came back on the radio, and uh, it said something. <laughs> I couldn't read it, so uh, and I, I assumed he was uh, uh, really busy in his cockpit. Uh, I think he had his uh, hands full. Um, so uh, I just uh, quickly reached out to to um, the amp my radio to get the volume up in case he was trying to uh, message again, but. Um, I think it was in that moment uh, I just uh, realized the tow plane was disappearing downwards uh, in front of my uh, uh, my gladius nose. Wow. And that's when I realized, uh, well, I thought he was anyway, uh, uh, going down. And then I just uh, reacted and and, uh, and pulled the release handle to get free of him. Uh, I thought maybe the last thing he needed was me uh, uh, staying on. If right. He, struggling to avoid hitting the lake himself i mean i'm a, I'm a tow pilot as well as a glider pilot and uh i i know that we you know we when we get into trouble we kind of want to drop the glider right away but it's it's always a a balance if something goes wrong of when you do that but you you proactively decided for yourself to let go yeah i that seems like the only sane reaction at the moment right right and you're you're still at just under a hundred feet at this point, and underneath you is the lake, I gather. Well, not yet. Um, I was uh, taking a quick glance downwards uh, just when I released, and I saw maybe I had. Uh, well, I think maybe it was the two hundred fifty last feet of the runway disappearing under me. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I think maybe if if I had uh, side slipped and uh, pulled the air brakes, I probably would have. Uh, um, put the glider down just at the end of the runway and uh, continued into the, the rubble and the bush uh, bushes down at the, at the lakeshore. Essentially and, uh, a crash landing at that point. Yeah, that, it would have been. Uh, I don't think it would have ended well. It's, uh, it's a bit rocky down there as well, so mm. that was no option. So uh, just to continue forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So and um, yeah, I took a quick glance at the um, altimeter as well, and I saw uh, probably had well, it was difficult to see. Everything was uh, happening so fast, but I realized I had about uh, half the uh, altitude I needed to make a successful 180 uh, degree turn back to the to the runway. Mm -hmm. And uh, just to verify, I had a I had a quick. A look out uh, the cockpit window to to my right. Um, I could see the the trees on the on the uh, 
a river bank. There's a there's a river coming out uh, just uh, to the west of the runway, and I could see those uh, those trees were looking way too high. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I, I, my altimeter was uh, oh, correct. I I didn't understand a chance if I, I was going to try that turn. So uh, I uh, quickly ruled that out, um, and then. Uh, yeah, there's just one option left, and that was to land straight out into the lake. It's very interesting the way you tell the story to me. So you're you're being very calculating. You've ruled out these options. Are, are you feeling calm? Are you feeling stressed? How, how are you feeling at this moment? Um, I, uh, things were moving pretty quickly, uh, just talking about seconds. So I didn't really have... Uh, time to feel that much uh, I think at that point but um, I did do some observations and uh, basically maybe when I'm looking back at it and that was uh, uh, up until that moment I've been uh, telling you about how I am uh, there was a lot of uh, um, instincts and uh, impulses and um, um feelings that wanted me to do things <laughs> and uh, they were really strong really surprisingly strong and that was that i i i wanted to stay on the tug plane i didn't want to release um and i really wanted to uh turn the plane around to get back to the runway and i did not at all want to fly out over the water i I, uh, I I really wanted the the, the plane to stop, but uh, as you know, that's not a good option either. So, so there was a lot of impulses, and uh, uh, I, I I didn't quite fight uh, consciously to overcome them. But uh, uh, what happened was that when I realized that landing straight out was the only option, um, um, I sort of just started on my uh, checklist and. Uh, as they say, training took over, but mm-hmm. <laughs> sounds good, but that's exactly what happened. So, um, I, I guess it was almost a relief at that point because you'd made your decision. You, you knew you were going to land straight ahead. You, you'd made your choice. Yeah, exactly. And then all those uh, urges to do uh, stupid things, they, they sort of uh, uh, disappeared. They were, I don't know if you can say overridden, but that's a bit how it stopped. And mm-hmm. from there, I was calm. Uh, then I was just in uh, problem-solving mode mm-hmm. to go through my uh, water landing checklist. Um, you know, pick a, pick a spot to put a glider down, uh, check that uh, the harness was fastened properly, uh, check the wheels out. Uh, uh, I, I keyed the mic to say I was landing in the lake, and then uh, I turned my uh, main power off, main switch. Um, and... Um, Check my airspeed, and when I got to, uh, I think maybe uh, uh, release the parachute, uh, not to release it, but uh, open um, the harnesses, so uh, um, un- probably unfasten the uh, parachute was the right term. When I got there, uh, it was uh, it was time to flare, and then uh, I was down. So it was just, uh, I guess, from the decision I made a decision to I was on the water. I uh, I was just uh, concentrated and uh, doing my checklist and and solving my uh, tasks. Now, are you, did you try and land close to shore, and was it just a, a normal type of flare that you did? 
Yeah, I picked a spot about a hundred meters uh, out from a pier. Um, uh, I know that pier, uh, well, the water besides it is uh, uh, pretty deep because they're doing some uh, uh, underwater and uh, uh, remote submarine testing out there. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's a crane on it, so I thought maybe you know we could use that to get me out out of the water again. Uh, but yeah. Um, a hundred meters from the pier, uh, looks like a good spot. I just, uh, chose that. You know, I've been visualizing this situation quite a few times. Uh, well, actually every time we take off from, uh, from, uh, runway one, two and, uh, um, uh, the optional spots, uh, there's, um, there's a river bank, uh, on the east side, uh, of the, of the river coming down, which is a promising spot to set a glider down if it comes to that. And there's a bit further out uh, on the on the east side of the lake. There's a, um, a sort of a, a beach uh, and a marina, where it could be possible to put it down to sex successfully as well. But um, I didn't have the altitude to get that far, so uh, uh, the pier was the was the closest and best place I could find. And and what was it like at impact or impact? You you landed the glider. There was no real impact i gather what what was that sensation like of the glider landing on the water it was a bit weird <laughs> uh well, it was fast too so as, as soon as uh, I, I was flaring at the minimum speed so it wasn't just a violent crash or something so landed pretty neatly and um uh, just for a split second i was on the surface uh, and i can see these huge water sprays shooting towards the sky and then everything got dark, uh, murky, greenish dark, and I was uh, under the surface, because most of the uh, glider and the cockpit had dipped uh, under the water surface, quite deep, and could have been a 30 degrees angle downwards, maybe. Mm-hmm. And that's when uh, retardation started, so when it, it stopped pretty fast, so I was, um, I was hanging uh, in the harnesses, uh, so it's, it's like you know, driving at a highway and, and you know, smashing your brakes. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's pretty, it stops pretty uh, fast. So, um, so that was it. And then, um, the motion stopped and a little, uh, uh, hatch on the sliding window of the canopy just, uh, uh, broke off and flew open. And I guess it was because of the water pressure. So I had this, um, this spray of water shooting in, uh, through the hatch. And then uh, we were suddenly moving backwards and up. Um, I could see the surface of the water coming closer, and then we just uh, popped up at the surface. So the, the glider and, uh, popped uh, back up is what happened? Yeah. Just dipped its nose down into the lake while we were uh, stopping, and then uh, when the motion stopped, it just popped back up again. Oh, great. And... Um, yeah, there was sunshine and uh, not much waves on the lake, uh, but it was nice. So um, I just uh, started feeling the uh, water coming into the to the uh, cockpit. Um, I was observing that we were floating uh, pretty neatly, so I, I wasn't really uh, much of a rush to get out. But um, I wasn't quite sure uh, for how long we would be floating, so... I started uh, securing my uh, phone uh, to make sure I, it wouldn't get wet if I had to swim, and um, tried to turn the power off from the, my Audi and uh, the other instruments. And uh, 
my power bank and all that, <laughs> my camera and all the equipment, and then uh, opened the canopy and climbed out um, on, onto the wing and uh, got my uh, parachute off and secured it inside a cockpit and uh, uh, sat down to wait if anybody have, had uh, seen me. And uh, uh, they had. <laughs> it was uh, quite a circus. Um uh, the the marina I mentioned uh, out from there, uh, it was a cabin cruiser, a uh, local cabin cruiser. It was steaming at me at a uh, pretty high speed. And I can see uh, uh, an ambulance on their way out from the city. And uh, I turned backwards and looked up uh, towards the uh, airport. I could see the airport's fire department uh, was uh, rushing uh, uh, today, then, uh, and my uh, uh, club mates were coming in cars and uh, on foot uh, to uh, to aid me. So, uh, and the police one were on their way. So, uh, at, I had admittedly been spotted. <laughs> at, at, at this point, was it relief? How were you feeling? I was just, uh, I don't know. I was just calm. Uh, didn't have much feelings, and it was. I was just uh, okay. It's just a wait, and I could see the. You can see that uh, the, the disc is uh, floating and that it wasn't sinking. So uh, I was pretty confident that I wouldn't have to swim. It would have been, could have been a bit risky. It was uh, really cold and hot water. So um, I wasn't quite sure how the, the 100 meters uh, swim in that uh, temperature hmm. with the pan. So, uh, um, but it looked like uh, that wouldn't be necessary. So um, that was just, yeah, waiting for the boat to uh, to get there. Right. And I was already trying to figure out how to to get the glider out of the water without damaging it. <laughs> now, for most of us as glider pilots, academically, we've read about what to do if, if you have to ditch your glider. But for most of us, we don't fly over water, we don't come near it, and it's an academic mental exercise. I understand for you and your fellow club members that training, training, training for this event is what made the difference. Yeah, um, I'm pretty uh, convinced that uh, that's what made made a difference because um, yeah, we we have uh, have a scenario on our uh, uh, pre-flight checklist that we go through it every time we take off, and um, I. I tried to do it properly since it's, you know, it, it, it is, it is a real uh, possibility. So I tried to visualize it uh, and go through it in my mind before I take off. So, uh -huh. and uh, yeah, I think that was quite vital because everything was happening so fast. And since uh, I didn't have more altitude than I did, uh, it was just, uh, uh, I need to do things quickly and react uh, uh, correctly. Uh, and I wouldn't have been able to, you know, so figure these things out uh, when I was in the situation. So, uh, yeah, I think that's probably what saved the day. Uh, it was the training. Is there anything you would have done differently or you do differently now? Uh, not really. Um, I don't think I had any other options. Um, there was some talk about uh, that it could have been an, uh, an option to to stay on uh, the, the um, tug plane a bit longer, but um, 
I learned afterwards that he had been sort of lurking his way uh, over the treetops back to the to the airport on uh, one third uh, power uh, setting, and uh, I don't think he would have been able to um, pull both me and the glider and his own plane over those trees and then back to the to the airport. So we probably would have ended up in the woods, and uh, I think that would have been catastrophic. And um, and also, if we had started on the turn over the lake, I think we. Uh, we probably would have ended up uh, lower and uh, in the and in, in the river stream uh, by the time that I would have to release, or he had released me, mm-hmm. and I would have had a much uh, shorter time to react and do the right things and have control of over where, over the landing site and where I was going to put it down. So, so I I think that uh, that that was an option. So I, I had only the way. Uh, yeah. that I did it, it um, sure sounds like you made all the right decisions. I, I, you know, spent time in the tow plane myself and in the glider, and the way you describe this scenario, it, it, I think you made the absolute right decision, and I'm very glad the tow plane made it back as well. Yeah, me too. That was uh, that was a big relief. I mean, even though it probably sounds a bit scary to to ditch uh, in a, in water, it's uh, as long as you put the wings. Uh, level down it, it doesn't hurt you mm-hmm. uh sliders uh, float and you get it back up on the surface and you have time to get out and all that but i think maybe a tall plane with a with a propeller in front and the, the heavy engine uh, you probably flip over and and it would start sinking while you're uh, uh partly upside down and that that would have been really serious so mm. i'm uh, really happy that he didn't have to do that now how's your uh, how's the discus will it fly again yeah, we're working hard. I've uh, spent 58 hours so far <laughs> trying to fix it. So, yeah, it um, it was uh, disassembled by my clubmates uh, right after we uh, got it out of the uh, lake and uh, was put into our workshop uh, with a high temperature to dry out. So it's been standing there for 14 days and we have uh, disassembled everything we can and uh, taken out all the electric, um, sent the instruments away. Um, or a new radio, so uh, uh, I think we have about half ways now to get it back uh, in the air again. So, but it will fly. It was no structural damage, and uh, I think it was four instruments and the radio that uh, died. And apart from that, it was just to dry everything, inspect everything, uh, lubricate everything at, uh, again, and uh, and I think uh, probably be better than a new when we get it to be. That's yeah, great. Yeah, so do you, do you think you might fly it again this season? Yeah, definitely. Uh, just trying to get it uh, um, to finish working on it before the, uh, the, the Nationals, which start the 10th of June. I uh, probably will have to have a bit of luck to be able to to make that. But uh, before the summer holidays, I think we'll have it ready again. That's great. That's great. Now, Oyston, before I let you go, I know there's still an investigation going on with the, the tow plane, what happened, but uh, is there any kind of conclusion at all or anything that we you don't know, or are you still waiting for the investigation? I'm still waiting for the investigation to uh, conclude. Um, but we have been doing some work uh, on it, and uh, we had a, a sort of a service uh, bulletin that we needed to, uh, to do, so um, I think the technicians may have figured the problem out, and uh, it's uh, have been released to fly again. So 
it's uh, it's operating uh, at the moment. But the the root cause hasn't been concluded yet, so we're still waiting for the results hmm. of the end. Well, Ocean, thank you so much for telling us this story. I know there are going to be lots of glider pilots around the world who, who saw the images of your glider coming out of the lake, and uh, now they can hear the, the story from the pilot's mouth, you know, as to what exactly happened and how you reacted and how it went so successfully. And I think for a lot of us, it'll uh, be good food for thought and, and uh, knowing that landing on water is a, is a serious and safe option. It was just a pleasure. If, uh, if there's any uh, use to anyone and to help anyone, it's uh, been uh, uh, worth it. So I think um, um, yeah, it's been uh, good to be able to to uh, tell the story. Oisin, take care. Uh, happy flying this summer. Stay safe, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Same to you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Oysten Bjorklund spoke to me from his home in Oslo, Norway. The Thermal Podcast is proud to promote Proving Grounds, an automated task scoring platform designed to safely turn novice glider pilots into cross-country soaring pilots. Proving Grounds is now in use in Canada, Europe, and the United States. And the Soaring Society of America now joins the Soaring Association of Canada by providing support for gliding clubs who want to implement this fabulous cross-country motivational tool. Check out episode 15 of The Thermal, where co-founder Patrick McMahon talks about proving grounds and how it works. For more information, go to their website, which is soaringtasks, all one word, dot com. That's soaringtasks.com. Proving Grounds is especially a hit among novice pilots who want to learn how to safely fly beyond gliding distances of the club. On one of the earlier episodes of the podcast, we spoke to gliding legend Bernard Ecke about a new edition of his classic Advanced Soaring Made Easy. This month on Gliding Club Confidential, Bernard is back to talk about where he flies, the Balaclava Gliding Club in the state of South Australia. So, so Bernard, talk to me about your gliding club. Where is it located? Well, I fly out of Balaclava most of the time, mm-hmm. and uh, Balaclava is a small country town, uh, approximately 100 kilometers almost due north of Adelaide. Um, it uh, is my preferred site just because there is hardly any airspace restrictions. We can, for instance, go to 8,500 feet over the airfield, uh, only about 20 or so kilometers further north, we can go to nine and a half thousand. And once we go another 60 or 70 kilometers further north, there is no airspace restrictions to speak of. Um, the only disadvantage is it is only located some 20 kilometers away from the uh, uh, Gulf. And uh, uh, it sometimes uh, uh, annoys, us, annoys us when there is uh, sea breezes coming in. Uh, and that can kill the uh, soaring in the afternoon. But it doesn't really affect uh, uh, cross-country flying because before the sea breeze hits, we get away in our higher performance aircraft. And it's no problem coming back, punching into the sea breeze for another, say, well, I don't know, 30, 40 kilometers at the end of the day. With today's slippery, gli- slippery gliders, that's not a problem. So you're able to do some convergence line flying there as well? 
Yes, yes, uh, I've had numerous fantastic flights along the conversions line uh, uh, that uh, the Seabreeze uh, provides. Uh, and uh, that's good fun too. It's just amazing uh, what uh, uh, the sea breeze can do for you if only you are in the right spot at the right time. Yes, and that's always the key, isn't it? So so yeah. d describe the airfield to me. Is, is it a grass airstrip, paved runways? What do you have? No, we haven't got a paved runway. We've got two gravel strips, uh, a main strip and a cross strip. Um, and... Uh, yeah, well, that's uh, typical for country clubs here in uh, uh, Australia. Okay. And how many members? Uh, at the moment, I think it's uh, about 45 members. Uh, it always goes up and down a little bit. Okay. And uh, you've got one or two tow planes and a couple of K-21s, that kind of thing? No, we haven't got any tow planes. We do have uh, two fairly reliable winches. Uh, two double drum winches, huh. and um, we have two ASK-21s. We use them for basic training, uh, and uh, we have added a DG-1000 a couple of years ago, um, which unfortunately is also being used for, well, flying in the immediate vicinity of the airfield these days. And, and no problem getting away on cross-country flights with the winch there? No, no, no problem at all. Uh, we, we, we usually gain approximately uh, 1,500, 1,600 feet on a, on a, a typical winch launch. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not a problem to get away from that altitude. And the annual fees, I guess, are relatively uh, in line with the other clubs? Relatively moderate, because uh, we, we, we don't employ anyone. Everything is done on a voluntary basis. And therefore, the flying fees and the annual membership fees are very reasonable indeed. Hmm. I always ask this last question about when I'm when I'm talking to people about their gliding clubs. What's the best thing about your club? Yeah, that's that's a, a good one. Um, yes, it is not a bad uh, place. Uh, the only uh, the difficulties we are having is that to the west of us, we got a, a fairly large mass of water. Uh, to the south of us, we got the uh, city of Adelaide with an international airport and on top of that, a military airport. So we can't go south and we can't go west. The only uh, way we can go is north, northeast and east. And uh, uh, on all these long distance flights, uh, we need to push into a northerly wind uh, and uh, on the first leg, and that makes it a little bit hard. And the other problem is that uh, about, say, 200 kilometers to the northeast of us, there is uh, unlandable terrain, there is what we call the scrub here, mm -hmm. which is uh, low uh, vegetation, and you can't land there without uh, uh, damaging your glider. But there's only very, very few sort of station strips that you can possibly get down on. Um, so it's, it's, it's a little bit tricky. And uh, I, I'm very hesitant to fly over that part of uh, the country unless there is a nicely developed cumulus, cumulus clouds around. Um, and even though I have got uh, a self-launching glider, um, I am sort of very reluctant to venture into that part of the world. 
And I understand you, you're eyeing a 1250 flight at some point when the conditions come together. Yes, that's still on my bucket list. I'm hoping to do that sooner rather than later. I've done a 1130-kilometer FAI triangle, and uh, I got away reasonably late. And if I can get away, say, an hour earlier on an exceptional day, it should be possible. Now that I've got an ASH-30, which is a little bit better in performance compared to my older ASH-25, so um, I'm, I'm still optimistic that that is a possibility in the years to come. Bernard, it was a pleasure speaking to you again. Thank you for telling me about your gliding club. And uh, stay safe in South Australia, and I hope you have some great flying this summer. Yeah, once again, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it, Harry. Okay, you take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bernard Eckie spoke to me from Adelaide, South Australia. To find out more about the Balaclava Gliding Club, go to bgc.asn.au. That's bgc.asn.au. And now a word about our sponsor, SkySight. This weather app was designed with glider pilots in mind. If you want to learn more, listen to SkySight's founder, Matthew Scudder, on episode number seven. SkySight is easy to use and has great functionality. And it's great for predicting convergence lines and task planning. For listeners of The Thermal who are interested in trying out SkySight to maximize their cross-country flying or just figure out if it's worth the drive to the gliding club, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters, and you'll get a 14-day free trial. COVID-19 continues to impact our lives and gliding operations around the world. One of the more insidious side effects of COVID is how it affects us as pilots. Whether we've got decades of experience under the belt or have recently soloed, we're all susceptible to COVID brain. David Donaldson is the National Safety Officer with the Soaring Association of Canada. I've reached him in Bell Fountain, Ontario. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Harry. Thank you so much for, for doing this podcast and, and helping get the, the word out. I really appreciate it. Good. Well, let's start with COVID brain, also known as plain brain fog. What yeah. is it and how do we recognize it? So our brain weighs about 2% of our body weight, but it takes a whopping 20% of our metabolic energy. You know, metabolically speaking, this is the most energy-hungry organ in our body. And when we get depleted, we start to get brain fog. And, and the way I like to describe it to people is late afternoon brain fog. We've all experienced this at about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you're having a hard time connecting the dots. What's happening is our brain is depleted. Now, there's a couple of different types of energy that we think about. There's physical energy like sleep and exertion. There's uh, metabolic or, or you know, food energy. So if you're low on glucose, blood glucose drops, um, you know, if you skip lunch, that kind of thing. Um, there's hydration, of course. Mm -hmm. And there's also just interference. And this is the psychological side of things. And this is COVID. This is what, that's the interference part of it, right? Exactly. And this is where COVID comes in. So anytime we have something that is interfering. So let's say, for example, you've had that, you know, spousal unit discussion, right? And you're driving to the glider club and all you can think about is, argh, oh, that, argh. 
and, and, you know, it gets in the way. And now you're expected to go step into an environment that's extremely unforgiving as we, you know, assemble our glider, prepare our flight and, and go fly. COVID is no different. Mm-hmm. It is adding interference into our lives. Uh, many of us are either working extra hours and, and have, you know, extra load on us as we're trying to figure out this new environment. I know that's definitely been my experience this past year as, as we had to retool. Sure, the zooming and all that stuff, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then we get into the whole Zoom fatigue. Some of us got laid off and we're now sitting there at home going, what do I do? When am I going to get a job? How am I going to pay my bills? Some but- of us... If I can interrupt just for a sec, part of this is that a lot of people don't even realize this, right? That's what makes it so dangerous because we've been living with COVID and it's just people don't realize the stress that's been given us. Yeah. And and that brings me to that third category. You know, the folks who are retired that are, you know, that have have the wealth and and they're not worried about, they're not really impacting. They're going, you know what, this isn't really impacting me. I can can just go to the, the field and go fly and have my escape. But the reality is you're hearing the news. It's hitting you at that emotional level where it is triggering your amygdala. You're getting a little bit of that amygdala hijacked. You're getting a little bit of that, you know what, I need to stop and get gas and and buy some snacks for my long flight. And I got to go into a store right now. And I'm a little bit more of a senior citizen here. So I'm in that high risk group. Mm -hmm. And I now got to go and interact with someone who may be holding a deadly pathogen. And all they have to do is breathe on me. You know, so we're, we're donning masks. We're doing new things that we never did before. And all of this gets in the way of us, you know, truly being able to focus and be 100% present. So what are gliding organizations like the Soaring Association of Canada and other big ones like the BGA, how are they approaching this and what are they suggesting? So the first thing and and the biggest one, and this is why I'm so grateful for you uh, having me on as a guest, is the awareness piece. Because if we're not aware of it, the extremely insidious piece here is that situational awareness is going to be the biggest impact. Mm-hmm. I'm not aware of the situation. You know, I'm, I'm going down that, that, you know, that path to get my glider ready to go for my flight, and I'm missing some key little details. And as we both know, one of those little key, small, small, minor details can kill you. Yeah. And what we're seeing, and I'm seeing this both in the accident rates here in Canada, but also even worse in the States, the accident rates are dramatically up. Really? So, yeah. So I just did a quick um, five-year average based on my stats that I've been collecting over the past six years. And from 2015 to 2019, we're averaging 113 flights per incident. That means we would have, on average, over that five-year period each season, we would do 113 flights with nothing happening. And then that last flight, you know, you'd have one reported incident. And this is both Canada and the States? This is just Canada. Just Canada. Now, this past season, so our first COVID season, we had a dramatic reduction in flights. We had a, we were down about 30-odd percent. But our accident rate jumped to 60 flights per incident. It nearly doubled. When you look wow. at the average and say, you know, based on the average, how many flights do we have before we have an incident? And we're down to 60 flights, which means we're having two incidents where we used to have one. That's a bit terrifying. It is. And in the States last year at this time, the SSF, the Soaring Safety Federation, received a letter from their insurance company saying that not only the accident rate was up, the fatality rate was up, but the insurance claims were way up, dramatically up was the wording in the letter. Hmm. 
even though soaring had come to an almost standstill, as, as they described. And they said, if this continues, we're, the insurance rates will be affected, potentially even canceling the insurance. We saw the same trend last year in Canada. When we look at the insurance rates, there was a spike in claims. And, you know, we look at this at that longer year-over-year average. This spike is dramatically higher than, you know, what we've been seeing in the averages. And I'm looking at that and going, you know, what is the big difference from last year to the previous five years? And it's it's COVID. Yeah. Listen, to getting to some practical examples here, I recently flew for the first time this season. The restrictions have kept me from the club. I couldn't go. We can't uh, fly together, so there are no check rides. I'm an experienced pilot. Mm-hmm. I went... <clears throat> for a flight early this week, had a great little rip, but I haven't actually had a ride with a fellow pilot or an instructor since 2019 because of COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, personally, one of the things, and luckily it looks like now with the restrictions easing up a little bit in the next week or two, I will be able to get a check ride. And I consider that personally extremely important, even though I'm an experienced pilot. These are the sorts of things I imagine that you're pushing to get people to get check rides and, and yep. double check rides. And are, are, are those the recommendations? Absolutely. And this is one of those interesting things. And there's two elements that you identified here, Harry. The first of which is that you're an experienced pilot. Statistically speaking, experienced pilots are the ones that are at risk. Mm-hmm. Experienced pilots are the ones who are who are crashing and who are, you know, to be blunt, killing themselves. Student, as a student, that is actually your safest time in flying. And we see this both in the glider world and the power world. As you gain experience, you become a little bit bolder. Complacent. Exactly. And time goes on, you know, you develop some bad habits. And this is why we remain as an association very steadfast on spring checks should be mandatory for everyone. Mm -hmm. Now, let's put this into context of COVID. We're stepping into an environment where we've got a bunch of question marks. We've got a bunch of interference happening in our brains. We're probably not working at our best. We're not highly focused. We're now doing a late start to the season. so Wearing masks it, in the cockpit. Exactly. And if there's anything that could create get itis within the glider community, it's a late start to the season, mm-hmm. right? Because it's like, you know what? I'm itching to go flying. It's now July. It's now August. I haven't been up yet. Man, I just want to go. And in, in, in previous years, I've seen some incidents where people, you know, for example, they buy a new glider. And a, a good friend of mine, he bought a new glider. He got it in late October. He finally went to take his first flight in it. It was not an ideal day, and he scared himself big time. And he recognized afterwards that, you know what, I had to get there, right, just to get that flight in because he was worried that if he missed that day, it was the end of the season. It wouldn't mm. be till next spring, right? So, you know, good learning lesson there. But we're now getting an entire community into that type of a mindset where it's like, you know what, I mentioned to go, I mentioned to go. And because this is a leisure activity, there's a sense of, oh, this will actually help because I'm going to go and do my hobby and my, my passion and I can, I can relieve some of that stress. And while that is very true, the airplane doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Of course not. You know, the airplane, the airplane's not going to say, oh yeah, I, I, you didn't do your check flight. So I'm going to be easy on you. Right. And I'm really um, appreciative of the openness that we're seeing in the Canadian gliding community. The report that we got last year, and I'm just going to highlight one for you, it literally wrote several errors on the first flight of the season. 
and this was no, it was done on a good soaring day. It was by an experienced pilot. Same story as yours, Harry. You know, I got permission to fly um, because, you know, of my experience, owned his own ship, was able to, you know, start the season. And he listed um, six separate incidents, errors on a single flight. Hmm. And he landed and he wrote, like, he gave me a good half page of, you know what, this is what happened. And OMG, boy, did I learn that day. So, David, let's assume there's a glider pilot or, a whole, or actually probably hundreds of glider pilots uh, that, mm-hmm. have, that are listening to this podcast that may not have flown yet this season, that this weekend or next weekend are going to be going to the gliding club for the first time. Yeah. Is there a takeaway message? What's the one thing mm-hmm. you want to get across to these pilots, whether they're experienced or novice, who are going back into gliding during COVID? Slow down and double check. Good advice. You know, we we think about and and I'm going to reference that that incident report from last year. He arrived late at the field. He was delayed rigging because he was having trouble finding people to rig. Uh, his farm needed to be updated. He set the altimeter incorrectly. He set it at negative 200 feet instead of positive 800 feet, and mm-hmm. so on. We in gliding. One of the things I love about gliding is that get there itis is rare. Right. And of course, get there, right? is that that sense of I'm flying somewhere and I want to get even though I'm pushing the limits, even though I'm heading into bad weather or, or running low on fuel, et cetera. We don't have that with gliding as much. Now, I'm, I'm going to take competition flying out of the conversation. I'm just going up to have an enjoyable flight. If I launch at 11, 1130 or noon, really, is it going to make any difference? If I spend extra time rigging my glider and if I get, you know, I'm going to turn to you, Harry, and say, hey, you know what? You've got the same glider type as me. Can you please give this a once-over? I want you to do a DI for me on my glider after I've rigged. Let's do an extra careful critical assembly check. Let's, you know, do the aileron. Um, uh, the you know, that that, that is really actually really good advice. It's almost like buddy checks. We've, yeah. You know, it's not normal year this year. It wasn't a normal year last year. But doing something like a buddy check, making sure, you know, hey, uh, you know, whatever, David, are you feeling okay today? How's the brain? How's the everything put together? You're comfortable yeah. with going cross country where we sort of need to look after each other a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we get into this bravado pilot thing, which personally drives me nuts. Some of the, the most respected pilots that I see are the professionals and uh, that we had a, a professional at our club named Rick. He used to fly a, a private jet, and he bought a brand new glider from Germany. Uh, it was like a, I think it was a 28. And I remember him flying it, and he stayed at the field. And he looked at me one day, and he says, "I'm not going cross country until I can spot land this thing regularly." Yeah. And I, and, you know, and and this is a guy with like thousands of hours. He was yeah. a tow pilot. He was an instructor. He knew his stuff, you know. But yet he had the humility to say. This is a new glider to me, and I'm going to spend time getting to know her before I, you know, before I head out. Well, David, I think there's a lot to chew over in our conversation. Humility is a good one. Buddy checking is another. Being extra yeah. cautious with what's happened in the last year or two to all of us. So I very much appreciate this chat, and I think uh, anybody who's listening to this will take it to heart before they get in the cockpit. I certainly hope so. And again, thank you so much for having me on. I greatly appreciate it. I hope to share a thermal with you one day. Yeah, we will. I didn't fly last year. Um, looks like my second shot is happening midsummer, and I'm hoping to get some flights in near the end of the season. So we'll see you up there. 
Stay safe, David. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Bye. David Donaldson is the National Safety Officer with the Soaring Association of Canada. I reached him in Bell Fountain, Ontario. If you have any questions regarding safety, you can get in touch with David through his email, which is david.donaldson at greatlakesgliding.com. That's david.donaldson at greatlakesgliding.com. That's it for episode number 24 of The Thermal. I will be back again in early July with another show that will include an interview with G. Dale about his latest book that focuses on human performance and high-performance soaring. If you have any complaints or comments, I can be reached at the Thermal Podcast, all one word at gmail.com. That's the Thermal Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering The Thermal Podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe.